When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. From Cedarburg Public Library Radio. Well, welcome everybody to the kickoff of the 2021 Great Decision Series, sponsored by the Cedarburg Friends of the Library. And uh, obviously, we're here in a virtual format instead of gathering in the community room as we have in the past. But we are certainly grateful for the return of this time-honored program, which provides citizens with an in-depth look at some of the current issues of the day. My name is Jeff Messerman. I am the library associate here at the Cedarburg Public Library. And I want to thank you for joining us this evening. Before we get started, I'd like to ask if any of you, if we have any Cedarburg friends of the library joining us tonight. And if so, feel free to smile and wave because we absolutely appreciate your generosity. <laughs> and uh, these programs are uh, made possible because of you. So thank you so much. Uh, tonight, we are pleased to welcome back Cedarburg resident and retired senior foreign service officer, Mr. John Katzka, who is kind enough to bring his wealth of experience and knowledge to the topic of global supply chains and national security this evening. As we know, the shutdown of global supply chains due to the COVID-19 pandemic brought to the fore an issue with the High level of global economic interdependence. What happens when one country is the main source for an item, say face masks, and then can no longer supply the item? Countries suddenly unable to meet the demand for certain supplies are faced with growing calls for economic nationalism. What are some of the lasting effects of the pandemic? Uh, what the, can they have on uh, global supply chains and trade? How will this affect national security? Well, we are about to find out. So please join me in welcoming Mr. John Katzka. Thank you. Well, welcome back to Great Decisions and the 2021 version. Hopefully next year, we'll be back in the library's community room. Looking at the four topics we are addressing this year, two are very general. The talk I'm giving tonight on global supply chains and national security, and the one that Peter Cranstover will give at the end the end of globalization with a question mark after it. We are using these big picture topics as bookends for two important, though more narrowly defined themes, 
China and Africa, which will be next week, and the Persian Gulf security, which will be the week after that. Great decisions in Cedarburg has been going on now for 12 to 13 years. I'm trying to figure out exactly when, when we started it, but it's about that time frame. During that time, we have enjoyed a strong relationship with three organizations. First of all, the wonderful people here at our library. Secondly, the Cedarburg Friends of the Library. And as a past president of the Friends, I heartily recommend to you that you become members and support these kinds of programs. And finally, the Ozaki Legal Women Voters. The library staff provides the logistical support. The Friends provide the financial assistance to make this program work. The League has been very helpful in getting the word out to, on the value of these programs. I highly recommend that you support all three. Now, a couple of what you might call housekeeping items before we get into our topic. Though I was a government spokesperson when I was a diplomat, I speak for myself these days and have no responsibility to promote the official position. I do have a responsibility to be responsible, and I'll try to do that. I have a perspective, and there are many perspectives on any foreign affairs issue, and it's important that you expose yourself to as many points of view as possible before you make up your mind on this or any issue. One of the ways those perspectives divide foreign affairs, and those of you who have heard me before know I, this is how I start off every talk, is the difference between realists and idealists. In recent years, I have favored the realist point of view, just to let you know where I stand. That is the more pragmatic national interest approach as opposed to the idealist orientation, which focuses on values like human rights and democracy. Importantly, neither approach is right nor wrong, but there are costs and consequences for either approach. When you hear someone's perspective on an issue, think about those costs and consequences. With the exception of the last four years, when President Trump had a, a more personal approach to foreign affairs, we have, a generally, we have generally favored the idealist approach in recent years. Rarely is anyone fully one or the other, and one's position can and probably should change to fit circumstances. I suspect were it not that we were in, are in the throes of this pandemic, supply chains might not even be a topic for great decisions this year. I further suspect that many of you haven't spent any time at all thinking about these, those supply chains. Well, let's look at a practical example. The chart of iPhone supply chain is significantly simplified, but the chart does suggest that there is a range of entities and countries involved in its production. Though its contribution to creating components for, the, for iPhones is modest, China is critically important to, the, important to the assembling of those phones and can put together massive assembly lines of over 28,000 workers in days, which would take us months to assemble if we could find the workers at all. I'll come back to this point at various points in the presentation because it's important when we begin to look at alternatives. So when, change, when there are changes in screens or chips or whatever that can happen at any time, 
That kind of flexibility is important to a company like Apple. At the end of the day, the opportunity for disruption in the iPhone supply chain is enormous. Globalization, a topic that Peter will address at the end of the month, or as it is also called, the liberal international economic order. And the word liberal in this is in the, used in this European sense of the word, meaning pro-business and pro-free trade. Well, globalization is still the concept, the framework. Supply chains are the mechanism for bringing those iPhones and other things that you want or need to you. What do we mean by supply chains? Well, Wikipedia is always there for a definition. It is a system of organizations, people, activities, information, and resources involved in supplying a product or a service to a consumer. You can read that. Supply chains activities involve the transformation of natural resources, raw materials, and components into a finished product as delivered to the end consumer. Yes, that is you and your iPhones, or maybe not, or, or whatever phone you want. Digitization fueled further speed, accuracy, and efficiency, allowing inventories on demand, allowing companies to operate wherever it made sense. Let me talk about supply chains in general terms, citing its broader dimensions and its general effect on our lives, say beyond iPhones. Well, any discussion of supply chain has at least three dimensions. One, obviously economics, trade, just-in-time inventory, things like that. Two, politics and national security. The World Trade Organization, the WTO, though you would think it was in the economics portfolio, I see it more in the political portfolio because that's the dimension that, that is one of its biggest drivers, especially now. Another factor of the polit politics and national security is are the issues like critical product denial, like those masks and gowns that we were looking for when the pandemic broke. And then there are issues like protectionism, isolationism, and anti-globalization. The third factor are black swans or unpredictable events, such as pandemics or technological breakthroughs. By definition, black, black swans can be either positive or negative, though both are disruptive. In the case of COVID-19, we are definitely talking about a negative disruptor. The way in which we put together the vaccine for this through the messenger process may be one of the positive sides of this pandemic. According to The Economist magazine, supply chain managers have had a stressful few years from the Sino-American trade wars to Brexit to COVID-induced restrictions on medical products, experts, and travel. There has been a lot, a lot to deal with. The idea of bringing back jobs has been a common theme among politicians who have long argued for companies to shift production back home because they want jobs for their constituents. There can be, as well, an economic case for bringing businesses and jobs back home. 
For example, to cut transportation costs or reduce inventories. The Reshoring Initiative, a group that advocates, advocates for more manufacturing in America, cites the allure of made in the USA branding for older Midwesterners. I think that means good people like some of us. Frankly, that argument may work for some, but it is not persuasive enough to convince manufacturers to bring their production back home or to stop people from using Amazon or other kinds of outlets to get the products they want at the cheapest price. When those companies do come home, it is often with fewer workers and more machines. That certainly was the case when Masterlock came back to Wisconsin several years ago. To that end, the experience of the past decade suggests that for every company reshoring production, there may be more doing the opposite. A survey of German manufacturers found that 2% brought production home between 2010 and 2012. Four times as many shifted operations abroad during the same time frame. It's just to show that this is a phenomenon that is going on, not just here in the United States. A study published in 2016 by the OECD, that's the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, found that the effects of reshoring on national economies were still limited. And then we have ideas of where the government becomes involved in trying to promote a particular industry. A look at the solar panel industry shows that pres presidential intervention, in this case by Donald Trump, to support domestic companies, ultimately led to higher prices for those products because these new companies were not able to compete with international competitors. And some of these companies went out of business. So obviously we have to look at the cost and consequences, as well as the national security considerations as we decide how we deal with disruptive threats. Nor does recent history suggest that new technologies will cannibalize trade. Take 3D printing. In 2017, a report by ING, a respected global bank, predicted that 3D printing could wipe out 40% of trade flows by 2040. Well, a study by the World Bank found that 3D printing's use in the hearing aid industry, as an example, was useful for only part of the manufacturing process. And hearing aids were, are cheap to transport. And as a result, supply chains were not affected. Of course, this doesn't mean that in the future, 3D printing's impact will not be greater, especially in products that do not require major foreign inputs and where shipping costs are an issue. Looking at another 3D printing effort, Gary Gareffi at Duke University noted that Adidas failed in their effort to 3D print shoes in America and Germany. He found that a lack of locally available components meant the shoes had to be simplified so much that they lost their consumer appeal. So we can see that there are a wide range of influences and limitations to supply chains. The rise in tariffs in America and elsewhere over the past four years could in theory have been a game changer, encouraging companies to move supply chains nearer consumers. But there is little evidence of a great shift towards made in the USA following Trump's tariffs on Chinese imports. 
Although American manufacturing imports from 14 Asian countries fell in 2019, there was no offsetting increase in gross domestic manufacturing production here at home. The Economist reports, at the worst of the pandemic, company bosses inevitably wondered if bringing production closer to consumers might help. Recent reports suggest that import growth is still growing faster than domestic manufacturing production. As I mentioned earlier, supply chains are a product of globalization and their importance has accelerated since the 1990s. As a result, often those supply chains include production that stretch across several countries as we saw with the production of iPhones. When issues like trade wars and pandemics strike, those multi-country production supply train chains are stressed, affecting both the exporter and the importer. We're seeing it right now with the freeze in Texas where chip production has been affected. Under the current globalization model, there is little incentive for companies to revert to one country production. Such a condition would limit their flexibility and affect their markets, and very importantly, market access. However, depending upon how long this pandemic continues to affect the world's economy, and whether the trade wars with China continue, these companies may be forced to revisit the question of bringing those businesses back home. The importance of the supply chain questions can be seen in almost every hotspot in the world. We could be talking about the Straits to transit issues in the South China Sea or the Straits of Hormuz, where Iran has significant control, or on a more global platform dealing with the effects of COVID-19, or the effects of authoritarian governments, isolationism, nativism, tariff wars and anti-globalization forces to name a few of the possible influences on those supply chains. Therefore, in order to deal with the, those hotspots, policymakers need also to consider the effect of their policies on those supply chains. There are costs and consequences, a terms, two terms I repeat often, to every one of those policy decisions. Obviously, there is concern in the United States about our trade dependence on China in several areas. It is one of the few areas where there is bipartisan agreement. But the story is more complicated. There are also Japanese cameras and Taiwanese chips and South Korean screens and Congolese minerals, to name a few involved in just those iPhones. We were already in a trade scuffle with China before the virus exacerbated the issue. Policymakers in the US from both parties want to examine the level of our dependence on foreign sources, especially from potentially hostile sources. Part of that examination will be cost and quality. Remember those Chinese assembly lines I mentioned earlier as one of the costs if we have to try to do the same elsewhere or here in the United States. To give you a and a historical view of this kind of process of where do you produce things. David Ricardo, an 18th century economic philosopher, 
noted that countries should produce items where they have a comparative advantage. Reshoring or bringing jobs back home are still affected by Ricardo's observation. With this broad introduction to the concept of supply chains, now we're gonna focus on how this works in particular countries and regions. Let's start with China. As it is the principal cause of our current supply chains concerns. China's embargoing critical medical equipment at the outbreak of COVID-19 raised bipartisan concern about our trading relationship and supply chains in general. Add to that the intent and the effect of the BRI, that's the Belt Road Initiative, which is a fantastic Chinese project to build supply lines and gain access, if not control, of raw material sources around the world. More on that next week in our talk about China and Africa. And then there are those key raw materials and access to them and technology-related supplies. You may have seen recent reporting on the international auto production cuts because of shortages of semiconductors. U.S. chipmaker Zilinix is reported to say that auto industry will need to rethink its supply chains. And add to those issues, we have China's more aggressive behavior in Hong Kong, toward Taiwan, and in the South China Sea. And we have a host of issues that flow back and forth from national security to commercial vulnerability concerns. Thankfully, thankfully, you will have an excellent source for expanding on all these dimensions next week. Rick Rokomora's business background in China and in Asia gives him a unique perspective on our relations with the region. Brexit is a topic that we're not looking at this year, but it is definitely a disruptor to supply chains as well. The United Kingdom is among the three largest economies in Europe, and the rules are changing on how it deals with the EU and the rest of the world. And it is, possibly was, depending upon how this all shakes out, Europe's leading financial center. Further, Europe is awash with anti-establishment groups who, in general, have little faith that globalization will benefit them. All of these conditions are potential to real supply chains disruption. While the virus has reduced demand for petroleum products in the short term, the Middle East continues to be a concern for supply chains. The Straits of Hormuz is a potential blocking point for that trade, especially with the escalation of aggressive relations between Iran and a consolidating Sunni majority in the Middle East. And you can see here with the Straits of Hormuz, this is Iran up here. This is a, can be a stranglehold. And Iran has played with it in the past uh, when crises have developed. Warfare in the Middle East is widespread, and the miserable economic position of the masses could quickly erupt into widespread violence, and another disruptor to supply chains. More on this in two weeks. We're going to go back to that slide on 
other considerations. Then we have those groups connected to anti-globalization. This particular type of movement is primarily a developed country issue where a, where a significant percentage of the population feels that they have not enjoyed as much of the benefits of globalization. We see some of these concerns in the polarization of our own country. Accompanying the turmoil in the more developed countries, there is a definite rise in authoritarian regimes, often allowing leaders or parties to define how they want to deal with globalization and supply chains issues. Further, fear of control over their lives is fostering isolationism, nativism, with racism meshing well with anti-globalization movements. COVID-19 has fed into many of these isms, adding fuel to the resistance to freer trade and movement and allowed or forced many of the world's economies to look inward. As we look at how we are going to deal with the future, here is a set of three factors that are discussed in the Great Decisions booklet that is available in the library, by the way, on the topic of supply chains and national security that could apply to any number of places in the world, but in the short term are most likely to apply to China. So without stepping too much on Mr. Rokomora's talk next week, here are Jonathan Chanis's options on dealing with supply chain disruptions that rise to the level of national security concerns. They are, they are renewed engagement, decouplement, and industrial policy adoption. On renewed engagement, China suggests that those supporting this idea are growing smaller and come from older business types with a vested interest in existing relationships. This is his characterization, not mine. It also includes diplomats and academics. The principal message is good relations are a win-win outcome, certainly a message that diplomats could embrace. Decouplement advocates, he points out, see decouplement as halfway between renewed engagement and industrial policy adoption. Proponents want to find new supply chains to replace those connected to China, likely with like-minded countries. And then here's the, the more austere approach, industrial policy adoption. According to Arthur Herman at the Hudson Institute, industrial policy is a program of economic reforms that give the government extraordinary authority as well as fiscal and regulatory powers to change, in this case, China's economic policies. With a new administration, there can be new options. So the reality of what happened during Trump's four years do pertain. From my understanding of the situation, none of these options is desirable in themselves, though decouplement is the more likely. Renewed engagement ignores China's continuing practices of ignoring or abusing accepted international economic rules. Decouplement and especially industrial policy adoption have severe economic consequences if too broadly applied. A more nuanced approach could be a targeted application of primarily renewed engagement and decouplement using industrial policy as a bargaining tool. 
We also need to remember that our culture of limited government involvement in our lives and aggressive individualism would make industrial policy very difficult to achieve outside of a world war. That going back to that last point, that's why China and, the, and Russia are more capable of doing it because their culture does allow them to have a much more authoritarian approach to these kinds of issues. Well, even before he took office, President Biden issued a plan to rebuild, rebuild U.S. supply chains and ensure that the United States does not face future shortages of critical equipment. Frankly, this was not dissimilar to what Trump, the Trump administration was saying about critical products, especially after the pandemic struck. Both approaches, however, <clears throat> have to deal with some of the things we talked about earlier in, regarding, in regard to reshoring supply chain realities and multinational corporation goals. Biden's initial goal is to monitor the process, look for vulnerabilities, and close identified gaps. The plan promotes resilience rather than pure self-sufficiency. In fairness, we have been able to protect a limited number of products and sectors from the vagaries of international commerce. Agriculture comes to mind as an area that many countries protect, and then there is the federal protection of the oil and gas industries. The long-time subsidization of the fossil fuel providers is controversial, and I won't get into the arguments for or against here tonight. However, if we try to build a domestic capability to protect other industries like cyber interest, we will run into cost, quality, and quantity issues. Remember again, those Chinese assembly lines with 28,000 workers. Also, U.S. international corporations would require a powerful argument to agree to give up their supply chains, responsible as they are to their stock owners, and aware as they need to be to what their competitors are doing and where they sell their products. I said I gave this, this particular presentation a couple of weeks ago in Franklin. Uh, the, on February 24th, I, I, on, the 20, on the 24th, I was getting ready for the talk and I just checked to see if there was anything new. Well, on that day, President Biden announced an executive order to help create more resilient and secure supply chains for critical and essential goods so that as a country, we can respond quickly to whatever crisis hits us. I was imagine I was revising that text rather quickly that day. Relatedly, the executive order calls for a 100-day review involving all federal agencies, that means everyone in the federal government, to address vulnerabilities in the supply chains of four key products. And the first is APIs. Well, that is not the computer definition of APIs. It's the pharmaceutical, which means active pharmaceutical ingredients. In recent decades, more than 70% of these ingredients come from abroad. The second one is rare earths and carbon fiber, which are critical to our defense, high-tech, and other products. Third is semiconductors 
and advanced packaging. And I, and I had to look up advanced packaging and it's really what it, what it says. It's, it's all the ways in which we have come up using technology and available sciences to produce better packaging for moving things. It is an area where we have underinvested under in production while losing our innovative edge. And the fourth area are large capacity batteries, which will be critical to the development of electric vehicles. The next step in the president's executive order will be a one-year review of a broader set of US supply chains with a focus on six sectors, the defense industry, public health and biological preparedness sectors, the information and communication technology sectors, the energy sector, the transportation sector, and supply chains for agricultural commodities and food production. That's a pretty broad uh, look at our economy. This year long, all federal agencies assessment will identify risks, recommend, recommend actions to improve resiliency and reach out to state and local shareholders and allies for input to the process. Finally, and this is my observation, some of these national security considerations could be part of an infrastructure package under discussion in Congress. Well, let me leave you with these thoughts. Our current experience with globalization, and this is where I, wa I, I wander into Peter's territory, is not the first effort, effort in, in the last two centuries. In the 1920s and the 1930s, as we lurch towards the Great Depression, countries increasingly leveled tariffs, protected home industries to the point that trade was seriously affected. There is no guarantee that similar moves could not bring down this round of globalization and the supply chains that it supports. We need to get a handle on the choke points in the supply chains. Stockpiling is one answer. We did that with petroleum. One of the consequences of this examination may, may be that just-in-time inventories will have to be modified. Another is a diversity of suppliers especially with like-minded countries that could be part of a deployment, a decouplement strategy. The president's expected actions suggests that the administration recognizes the threat, has put together a solid plan with reasonable short-term goals and a longer-term assessment on action. This more a strategic approach may hold off moves to do something fast you, may re, you will recall that after 9-11, when we added Homeland Security Department and the intelligence czar, or during the oil embargo in the 1970s when we created the Energy Department, our tendency in periods of crisis is to create new entities, new bureaucracies, because they are quick ways to look like we are doing something. Because of the nature of supply chains, an aggressive plan to rectify shortages and vulnerabilities will likely be slow in developing the structures needed and be met by counter moves, especially if we are focused solely on China. Because of these considerations, I hope we will meet plan early 
but take our time on how we deal with these supply chain concerns, that we work with like-minded countries in the planning phase, as well as how we mean to implement it. And I thank you for your attention. And I even put up some possible areas that you may want to ask questions on in case nothing comes to mind. So let's open up the, the channels and uh, let me hear from all of you. Feel free to uh, unmute yourself at any time and jump in. Is that uh, the structure we'll with John? That's the, that's the way we're going to play it. All right. I definitely want to hear a question from Mary Witted, who is the president of the, of the Friends of the Library. John, you put me on the spot. <laughs> I'm delighted that we were able to uh, present this in this virtual format, and I'm thrilled that so many are able to take advantage of it. Thanks, John. So I have, I don't know, it's sort of a question, sort of a request for your thoughts on China. It's China doesn't really have to care. It doesn't seem that much about what the world thinks of what it's doing. So, I, I mean, I don't know how true that is. Maybe you can comment on that. And then, like, how do you how do you deal with um, a country that you know doesn't have to play by the rules? You know, how do you exert influence? How do you how do you work with them um, or? around them or through them or <laughs> under them, I guess, you know, in order to um, get your needs as a country met? Well, China is actually indicative of a number of countries uh, who have become much more important in recent years that were not there at the end of World War II when the ru rules were put together for this round of globalization. Uh, we were largely responsible for coming up with the rules for this. Um, in the case of, 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 of China, since they weren't there for, the, for setting up the rules, uh, they don't have any particular stake in that game. And there's also a parallel between China today and Germany when Germany became a country back in the 1700s. Well, I'll, I'm gonna leave that very loose, 1700s. And, and at the time, the established countries of Europe had worked out rules on how they were, were dealing with each other. Well, Germany came in and wasn't party to the establishment of the rules and started breaking the rules. And we all know what happened uh, in that process in Europe, which led to World War I and to World War II. Uh, I don't, want to I don't want to draw a parallel between what China is doing today, but they, they clearly do not have a stake in, in the idea that there is protection for, for intellectual property rights, uh, patent rights, and things like that. Uh, does any does, is, is, is uh, Rick, are you on? Do you have any thoughts on this? Tough questions. So your 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 question is that China 
China is breaking all the rules and they don't care and are not held accountable? Is that your question, basically? Well, it's no, it's I mean, it's just you're you're going to run into this every now and then, you know, in business or in, in diplomacy or anything where you have um, you have a party that doesn't have to play by your rules, doesn't want to play by your rules, you know, um, as uh, you know, as mentioned, um, doesn't have any stake, you know, doesn't have a, there, there's no benefit to playing by your rules. So how, you know, what do we do? How, where do we go from here? You know, how do we engage with them in a way that's mutually respectful um, and that, you know, can sort of, you, you know, we talk about trade wars and maybe I'm an idealist. I'd much rather see us work together somehow. Maybe that's not possible. Um, what do you guys think? Well, this is where you get different perspectives. <laughs> China, you know, if you look, China has a different, China see, if you try to see the world the way the Chinese do, I, I lived there for 10 years. Um, you know, they see, you know, their whole pitch to themselves is that they're developing their nation from, from a hundred years of, of, or more of colonial domination, the, and coming out of a, a previous dynasty into the present world. So they, they feel they were suppressed by the, and exploited by the West. So to some extent, you know, you know, they've been humiliated by Western rules. They in fact refer to it as a century of humiliation by the West. So, and the other element is so the, the theme in their country is we got to develop the nation. This really started at the end of the Mao era that we have to develop the nation and, um, and raise the standard of living of all the people. This was Deng Xiaoping's major theme that continued until, until Xi Jinping came to power. So, Rick, let me throw something in that might help. It's China is important. Uh, if if we were dealing, if 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 this was uh, Thailand saying we're not going to play by the rules, that wouldn't be a big issue. China has risen to being a world economic power. That's what makes it important. Well, th their viewpoint is that, uh, that we, they work a lot harder than we do and we're lazy. So, <clears throat> so you know, it's, it's our problem, not their problem. Well, that, that's, that's one thing in terms of the production. It's another thing in terms of how you get the information about making new products. Mm -hmm. Or you're stealing it from others. And I think it comes down to me, to me, it comes down who's, who's hungriest. You know, why are there so many Chinese students in graduate programs in the United States and, and the, the program, the, you know, the, the key STEM programs are dominated by, China, by foreign graduate students, majority are Chinese, and where are, are Amer why are American students there? You know, where, where, is, where is the hunger in our society to succeed? I mean, this is the thing that, that worries me the most. Well, and it worries me as well. I mean, we... We have we we enjoyed the the fruits of the industrial age, and we're coming off a long period of pros of of prosperity, 
And that does, that does take away from the drive within a country. So what do you think would make us hungry again? Like what, what, what needs to change? How do we get motivated as a country to, um, you know, to grab that brass ring, I guess. I don't know. I think I don't have an easy answer. The, the, there are some obvious, obvious things you can say uh, a war would cause uh, that, uh, and unfortunately, there are consequences that go with that that are that are not desirable. And I don't think we're there at anywhere near that point. The trouble is, as 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 we begin to come up with policies to deal with China, they are also developing policies on how to deal with us. We tend to develop these policies from the construct of our own our own cultural definitions as they do as well. And sometimes we go past each other uh, without making the connection because of those cultural differences. There's, there's many different technologies where we're ahead of, ahead of China and hopefully we'll you know, do the right things to, to stay there. But I, I would argue that you know, going back to John's uh, law of comparative advantage, you know, the Chinese really helped help boost our standard of living in the United States. And, yes, and they did. Yeah. They, they reduced the costs of our goods and their goods. And, uh, you know, they're polluting their country. And, and we, we live in a beautiful place like Cedarburg or the surroundings. They've, they've loaned us all the money to do that. So, I mean, it might, you know, I, I, I think we have a very codependent um, relationship and, and you know, China's taken advantage of some of the weaknesses in our approach, particularly in the uh, some of the Asia Pacific challenges. But ultimately, China needs us as much as uh, to, you know their their growth is dependent on on us and on on our welfare. Well, that's reassuring. <laughs> Do you see as the future of the um, Asian trade deal that? A uh, number of Asian countries signed with China um, last year, and we were sitting, we sat it out. Do you yeah. see us entering into that in the future? Well, I'll, I'll start on this one. Uh, I thought one of the colossal mistakes of both the Clinton and the Trump campaigns was to say that TPP was a bad move for the United States. What they failed to understand that is the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, was going to be a, an agreement amongst all of the Asian countries and, and, or, and on the Pacific Basin with the exception of China. And so China was going to have to, in order to become a party to that, would have to, have to begin to change its behavior in order to be able to be accepted into the group. Now that they've gone ahead with this, I don't know how we walk back that particular process. Rick, you have a thought? Well, I guess one of the themes that of the Biden administration is a return to multilateralism, which is a version of the TPP probably won't be called that. 
but um, I think you know I think yeah you know, I think that has to be uh, an area that we need to focus on in, in addressing in some way resurrecting that. Yeah, I think what uh, a, 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 a an element that flows through the whole range of things we've been talking about is we can't do it alone. We're going to need friends. We're going to need like-minded countries to be able to deal with the issues that we're, we're decouplement, for example, would be uh, a, a way in which we find allies in which to deal with the, the chips that we need for the screens that we need. Uh, because again, these companies, the multinational corporations are, they may be based in one particular country, but they don't think, they think of themselves as global entities. The United States economy is, uh, the, China, the China economy, I should say it differently, has reached parity or will in the next couple of years in size to the United States economy. But when you combine, if, if you combine the US economy with Canada uh, and the European economies in Japan, substantially we're much larger than China is. Where China has been really successful is, is a, is a, they prefer unilateral diplomacy, making individual agreements, and that plays to their strength in, in sort of a divide and conquer strategy against the West. And and the, our policy over the last four years enabled was an enabler of China policy. I would th I would think they they were very pleased with the policy of the previous administration. I agree. I think that helped them a lot. Any other questions out there? I can't see who all's on. John, I, I, Peter here. I, I was wondering, I, uh, ha I seem to think that you're not going to be able to, um, over the long run, compete with the with with the Chinese in the global marketplace, but that we have a lot more um, government engagement, and that trying to deal with them on a in an open market sort of laissez-faire kind of trade situation is something that, because of the way they they happen to be set up, and because of the sort of conflation between private sector and, and, um, and, and government there um, is, would make it extremely difficult for us to be able to, um, you know, ultimately uh, try and, and, and prevail. And so the only thing to do is, is to constantly engage with them and to uh, maintain a multilateral type of system uh, that that's open and that relies on our strategic partners that uh, I think over the past four years, we seem to have insulted and, and dismissed. Wouldn't you agree? I do agree. I, I actually think that there was within the, within the, in the early days of the Trump administration, a useful message that was sent out to a number of allies uh, 
unfortunately, the message kept going on for four years. It, it was a wake-up call that things couldn't, didn't necessarily need to proceed as they were before, and that there's a, that we all needed to carry a, a, a piece of the of the burden of 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 an alliance of relationship. Does anyone see any possibility of doing an industrial policy where the government would step in and say to all the companies, you're going, as we did in World War II, you're going to produce tanks, you're going to produce uh, Jeeps, you're going to produce uh, destroyers? Well, I, I think if you get that kind of situation, I, I don't know that there's a lot of political will to do something like that with respect to either of the parties, the Democrats or the Republicans. But I think if you're, um, and indeed, having said that, though, some of the tariffs, you know, that Trump put in in the first few months of his administration um, continue uh, to hold forth. And Biden hasn't you know, he's at least moved very cautiously with respect to um, doing any executive orders to remove or to modify any of those things, because they, in, in a number of cases, they protect certainly, um, you know, some uh, traditionally democratic sectors. So um, in that regard, uh, well, and, and I think perhaps having put some of those tariffs into place in the beginning of the Trump administration, um, some economists started to look at them in, in a slightly different light and not necessarily as um, totally malign kinds of constraints, you know, to a decent functioning of the market. So I think he's, I think this administration is, is being a little cautious. They're not coming in and just getting rid of those things, realizing that maybe at least if you manage them properly, they might have some benefit for us. But don't, don't you also think that if before they would would rescind the those those tariffs, that they would want some quid pro sure. quo oh, yeah. for that? Yeah, I'm right. Yeah, I, they're not going to do those things certainly without having some kind of um, right, as you say, quid pro quo on that. There's things that China that that we want from China, and China wants from us. We China wants us to. Lay off picking on Huawei, for example. They would like us to quit restricting trade with Huawei and other key te key technologies. And on the other hand, we're going to need to cooperate with China. We want to cooperate with China on global emissions. So there's areas where we're not in conflict with China. We're going to have to work together in other areas where there's maybe some give and take. Agreed. Other thoughts? Questions? I, Something that's been bothering me. You know, I, the, just on reshoring, John, I, I don't think, um, I'm not sure when or how that's ever going to happen again now that you've had, you know, over the past 30 years, this connection amongst countries and this global trading arrangement having established itself so, so thoroughly. 
the only thing that's going to happen there, and I can't, you mentioned something about 2% of companies had come back over a particular number of years, but four times that amount had gone off and established themselves right. in, a, in a different place because of uh, cheaper manufacturing processes and a better, a better market arrangement for them. But I, I can't see reshoring happening in any sort of um, notable way in any in any in any manner that's you know would get us back to the to the 60s or the 70s certainly. But that you've got you know prices and and uh, and uh, you know for your inputs you know. Uh, and for labor and things like this dropping dramatically. So I, I just don't, I don't see it. The other, th Peter, the other thing the previous administration did, they really, I think it was a, a giant mistake. You know, if you, so I'll back up when the Japanese had in the 1980s, we were talking about Japan the same way today we're talking about China. I don't know if that, you think that's a fair analogy. They had a very favorable uh, foreign exchange balance well, against I us. I, no, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's a parallel. I think uh, Japan was largely playing within the rules. Uh, that was one thing. Second of all, Japan wasn't as serious a threat to uh, to our economic uh, position as China is now. But J Japan, you know, Japan amassed a lot of you know we had a very unfavorable. Uh, foreign account deficit with Japan. And then they poured all their money and invested in the United States, like buying Sony pictures, buying real estate in New York, and they promptly lost a lot of it. And China, the last couple of years that I was in China, the last two, two, three years they were involved in, we were involved in several major projects where Chinese companies were investing in American factories or production in America. One was the Fuyao Glass, which was featured in American Factory on Netflix. You can see the documentary on Netflix. We did all the electrical for that. All the equipment was made in the United States, and all the jobs were created in the United States. The second one was Tianjin Steel and Corpus Christi. It was championed by Governor Perry, who was then Secretary of Energy, Perry. And uh, we made all the transformers and switchgear for that again in the United States, but it was all sold in China. And they, and they made a lot of jobs in the United States. And then you know, our, the previous administration just shut it down. All that investment re reshoring through Chinese investment in the United States. The other one is the others that I was not involved with. It's the seven thirty. The big one is the Smith. What the Smith Meats, Smith Smithfield Meats, the big pork company in Iowa. They bought in. They bought that company up. So they were moving to reinvest in the United States, and we we shut it down. I think it was a giant economic mistake. Peter, to your to your point about what could what could reach, bring the reshoring back in a in a significant way is a very major negative. It's the end of globalization of this round of globalization. Um, basically, when in the other we were not. It, it was interesting because we were only about fifteen percent of our of our international trade, of our economy was an in international trade in the 1960s. Uh, back when the, and during the time of the depression, it had to be significantly lower in that. So the amount of 
right now are does it i don't know if you have a figure on on the amount of of international trade uh, how much international trade is part of our gnp but i suspect it is it is probably close to 50% well i last i looked and it's been a while but it isn't in the past year i thought that it, we were around a quarter actually of our gnp with respect to with, with respect to our with respect to our trade sector, yeah, I suppose we could find that out pretty quick. But you're right, certainly about it, we didn't really have much of a global marketplace until the uh, until the 80s, and and when when we started to have a when we we never needed it really, you know, because we had our own market here. We were such a vast place. I I I always tell the story. Growing up in West Bend, you know, a, a town of eight to ten thousand people, they had five different factories going there, and five different, um, uh, and five different kinds of products, including farm machinery, for God's sake, you know. And and it was uh, they, they weren't doing anything uh, internationally, certainly. The other thing about reshoring, if if you if, if you remember that I mentioned the the master lock example, when those companies are coming back, they're not coming back with all the jobs that they had before. And increasingly, this is an issue that as we move deeper into the information age, just because you have companies doesn't necessarily mean that there are lots of, that there are a commensurate amount of jobs that go with that. Right, yeah. Meredith, that, that fire looks awful inviting. <laughs> um, Mr. Katzka, I have a question regarding reshoring. Um, I, was, I was just wondering, um, we've been talking about this all obviously from a much broader like political context and being a young person, um, Giovanna might also be able to comment. Um, I'm just genuinely wondering if you or even Mr. Cranstover think that the United States going forward is going to continue to have a, a large enough like labor force of young people that want to go into something like heavy industry as opposed to into service sector jobs. Um, and I understand that we both went to Cedarburg High School and there there's you know not as much blue collar industry in Cedarburg as there used to be. Um, I'm just wondering if if we from that perspective should even be trying to reshore um, or if it's just sort of um, like a natural continuum of what happens over time. Well, there is Ricardo's injunction about you should produce where you have a, 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 a competitive advantage. But uh, Rick, this sounds like it's right up your alley. Reassuring. I was thinking about our own company, Cooper Industries. Most of the, um, I would say more, more stuff was moved to Mexico than to China. And, and you know, the heavy, the, of course, the, you know, the light, Small things like iPhones are a natural move to move uh, move to China, but but I think the other, I, you know, I think a lot you we you, we haven't really talked about this in the context of what's going on in Mexico, and I think that's you know the North American Free Trade Agreement. Most of the most of these companies that was the first place they moved, and that's where an awful lot of the business still is is in Mexico. Maybe components are coming from China that they're assembled in Mexico. 
So right, right now, I think there's a shortage of skilled labor to come, go into the United States, into U.S. factories. People don't want to go work there. They want to do other kinds of work. And this is to Riley's comment about where young people want to go. So what do you think yes. should be done, Riley? Go repeat what you said. Obviously, as we've all said, um, there are a lot of challenges to reshoring, and I think um, acting as though we're going to bring American industry back, at least from a, from a young person's perspective, it seems very romanticized and unlikely. Um, you know, it's it's very idealistic, and I wish that it would happen and that it was more feasible. Um, but just even on that point alone, it I. Like I said, even though I, I did go to Cedarburg High School and, you know, it's upper middle class, it's a lot more wealthy, not a lot of blue collar work. Um, I genuinely don't know a lot of people that would even want to go into, um, you know, manufacturing jobs. So just from that point alone, um, I'm, I'm not really sure if it's very feasible. You're talking about blue collar. Yeah, yeah. Um, like most, most um, students are like, you know, most of my classmates are going to go to at least a four-year university, possibly more, and end up in, end up in a, a um, service sector job. They, they don't want to go and, and you know, work in a factory where they're going to make iPhones, even, even you know, ignoring comparative advantage and all of that stuff. Um, I, I just don't see the desire amongst most young people that, I, that I've talked to to go and work you know, on, on an assembly line. Giovanna, yeah, I don't know if that's a, like a valid point to bring on, on into this conversation. Sure, yes, it is. Okay, I mean, we need to. We want to connect our local and local conditions to what's happening on the international front. If I may, I think part of the issue maybe might be education itself, like the way that things are framed. I think. Well, Riley, of course, is talking about how we went to Cedarburg High School and I think there was like a large expectation that students go to some kind of university and like, um, I think, I don't know, like manufacturing jobs used to be a very, a good way to make a, a living and support your family and things. And I just, I don't know that that's necessarily true today, obviously. And I don't know if it could be made true considering just how interconnected we are with the rest of the world. My observation is that, that it is still a reasonable way in which to make a living, but there are more and more of those jobs are disappearing. And, and either the workers are being pushed up, required to get more training and better skills, or just are are leaving the workforce and going having to go somewhere else. And that's where they end up in service industry. Yeah, and I worry about the, about that, you know, where they end up. And, you know, is it going to be satisfactory to them? You know, they're going to end up working in Amazon, which, you know, if you think factory jobs are rough, you know, I worked in factories all my life. Take a trip. Uh, I took a tour through the Amazon Kenosha facility. I was really surprised by the intensity of the work. It's pretty brutal. <laughs> and the, and then the amount of robotics that they're employing to deal with some of that too. So that yeah. where do these people end up? The the disillusionment of of blue collar workers. Which again, I recommend if anybody can see see American Factory, 
wants to know what life is like in a factory. That is a great documentary. It's on it's on uh, Netflix. You can just see the despair among blue collar workers. John, I've got a question. Yes, Doug. If uh, if you would, could you talk a little bit about sort of the the social impacts of the disconnect between where a company is is technically domiciled and where its workers come from. And what I'm getting to is there was a time when if I had a factory in a particular place, I cared about the schools in that place because that's where my workers came from. And uh, if, if my workers come from far, far away, maybe I don't have as much corporate interest in things like the schools in my community. Absolutely spot on. Um, just take a recent example, Johnson Controls which decide, decided that it wanted to become an Irish company, uh, merge with an Irish company because it was good for their tax break. Well, it won't, I, I, I would hold that it won't take long for the connections to the community begin to, to wither. That right now, yes, they're still very big, as is Miller's, very big, but look at well, now it's not Miller Park anymore. It's American Family Insurance Park. Uh, those connections with these multinational corporations as they're, and I understand that the, 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 the model, but the consequences are in terms of, of accountability, of involvement in their, in their, in their, in their, uh, in their communities, as well as as their, the ability to regulate them. Because if you're a multi, which you have companies all over the world, where are, you know, I, I suppose you have a headquarters, but what's to stop you from moving your headquarters to somewhere else? Rick? There's some interesting articles written about, you know, you know what Doug was saying. You know, the companies get decoupled from their communities and decoupled from their employees. Where in the old days, you know, everybody would know know everybody up and down the org chart. Now that doesn't happen anymore, and there's less interaction, which leads to a lot of hostility and uh, and uh, perhaps neglect of workers. So it's going to be a challenge for who for our, our country in the next 30 years, 40 years. Yeah. Well, I, I like to look at these things in, uh, in macro terms and, and, and I, and as, as, as some of my interlocutors know, I talk about the, the changes we're experiencing as we move deeper into the information age. Uh, there's new winners and losers. There's, there is, there are changes in values. There's, there are, we can see all the, the anti-globalization forces that are not, do not feel that they have been benefited from the, from what's going on. Uh, we are, we are living in a world which is, is, is starkly more confrontational than we had say 20, 30 years ago.
Joanna, where are you at? Are you at at, uh, at school? Indeed. Riley, are you at school as well? Yeah, I'm I'm at UWM right now, but it, I was in Montana last year, so just for this year. Okay. Do you want to see outside? Doug, have you got thoughts on it? On, on what, on the disconnect? Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, when you think about it, you can talk to some of the, the older guys who grew up with, you know, the Briggs and the A.O. Smiths and whatever, and they played in the company band and they played in the, the industrial league for basketball. And, you know, there was, there was much more integration between the rest of your life and your employer. And I think that's, that's largely gone away. Yeah. I do have one other quick question for you. Can you touch a little bit on how uh, sort of a just in time model affects supply chains or is affected by them? Well, very much. It, but we're seeing it with the, uh, what's happening with the auto industry right now uh, because of, of, of China's, uh, what do I, not, I forget exactly what they have done in terms of chips, but there has been, there, there hasn't been the easy access. What is it, Rick? You're, you're speaking of Taiwan, TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. That, that it's a, so it's a Taiwan company, but, it, but there's a shortage of chips in the world, I think, because no one anticipated the surge in demand. I don't think it's a, specifically a China issue. Yeah. But, well, uh, yeah, one of the, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Sorry. One of the things as we, as we looked at what did the, the, the coronavirus do to, do to our lives or, and, and how has it changed, it isn't so much that there are new things that came along. It's just that the things that were already happening are, are, have sped up significantly. And the, the amount of I mean, the Zoom calls, I mean, this company wasn't even in existence before the pandemic, as far as I know. If it was, it was, it was of no consequence. And now it is a major industry. So there are things that are uh, on the information side, on the technology side, that have really, really sped up. If you put your, at the beginning of the, of the pandemic, if you had put your money into tech stocks, you would have probably done well. But just in time delivery, you know, is just what it says, you know, you, 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 you minimize the amount of inventory that's used in, in the system and just the velocity of the way things move increases, which makes, you know, you makes your business more profitable and requires less cash to run your business. And then you have one little thing, one little bolt that you need to assemble your product doesn't show up on your assembly line and you shut the whole assembly line down. Well, we saw a little bit of that with PPE in the early days of the pandemic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there was a time when there was a much larger sort of strategic reserve of, of those kinds of products and, and using a just-in-time model. It's, well, we can just get it in a few days when we need it from the global supply chain. Well, in the case of the auto industry and other places, the semiconductor shortages have really, uh, you know, it's been very disruptive to, to, to companies. Not only a lot of companies that are using chips, not just the auto, automotive industry. There's a shortage right now, and that's a cycle in the, in the chip industry. They didn't put enough capacity in. 
and the, and the chips are coming from pretty far away. TSMC is the biggest world. There's others. We had the same problem in our South Milwaukee factory in 2005. Couldn't we couldn't get the chips to complete our circuit boards that are using power system protection products. So it's not a new problem. You can add, you, you want, you can add more capacity if you can get it or you can get the technology. You know, TSMC right now is leading the world in technology and semiconductors. But there are costs and consequences to these kinds of disruptions. So that if you, if, if just in time goes away, there's going to be a cost for that because you're going to have to establish larger inventories. That means another cost. That means prices go up. Or use, or use lower quality products, your components, for, for example. Which last line, yes, okay. You, you design, yeah, you end up designing your, your, your supply chain around that. And that's a, it's an interesting business for you uh, people who have a mathematical orientation to get into the supply chain. I don't think David Ricardo thought about the social implications of his theories. No, he didn't. He was, he was actually working with a much smaller world, wasn't he? Yeah. One concern I have in the, in the process after we've talked a little bit is I think that this has been a wake-up call for us. I, don't, I think we have to do uh, strategically a lot, a lot of things different. Just in time, it's, it's, it's going to lose a lot of its uh, uh, benefits if you can't get what you need when you need it. Uh, in other words, we're going to have to have uh, secondary suppliers that we can rely on. We're going to carry more safety stock. We're going to have to build alliances on the, on the demand side. If we're consuming the goods being produced, if we get 70% of the world that consume most of the goods and align with them, then we're going to have the ability to still have leverage over the producing uh, part of the, uh, uh, the society. Uh, I think we have to work on that; those relationships much stronger, say, uh, and getting an alliance on the on the consumption side, uh, setting the policies on the on the uh, uh, purchase side. That's why I was very, very pleasantly surprised, and uh, with with the president's executive order, which is calling for a slow process that is going to be, that is going to look at a lot of these questions from a, a number of different points of view, not just national security, but also in terms of, 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 of manufacturing, in terms of labor, in terms of, of environment. And so, at, and I'm not thinking of the, of the 100 day part of the process, but the one year long process. And I'd be delighted if we don't have to get another department of something because as you probably have noted uh, in your look at remembering your, your uh, government uh, studies, these departments don't go away. We just get more of them. And we just create more bureaucracy and, and, and having as someone who, uh, who spent some time with uh, bureaucracies in Washington, uh, they're not bad, but they're not necessarily good.
So do you, th do you think our standard, so I'll pose a question, do you think our standard of living has been increased because of our trade with China and globalization or, or do you? I think our, uh, well, I don't know if it's our standard of living. That's, a, that's is, you're just talking economics then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Economically, our trade, our relationship with China over the last 20 years has been beneficial to us. That doesn't mean it will necessarily be beneficial going forward. So how do you think we should modify it to make it continue to be beneficial for us? I think we need to find ways, and, and this becomes both a political and an economic discussion. And and because the, the, the China's actions within the South China Sea, uh, its relationships with India, its, its actions in, uh, uh, towards, uh, in Hong Kong and towards Taiwan do pertain to what we're going to do on the economic front. Because it's, it's and, and, and especially because we tend to be uh, more idealistic than some certain countries in terms of how we put our foreign policy together. And we're more likely to pay attention to the Uyghurs and, and, to, the, and to other kinds of issues that China, where China's culture clashes with ours. Well, thank you all very much for coming in. Uh, next week, uh, Rick Rocamoris, right there, you see his smiling face with the map of China behind him. I think that is the map of China. Uh, we'll be talking about China and Africa, but, but Rick is, is a, a resource on, on many matters relating to China, as well as on the business dimension. So he's been a valuable uh, interlocutor on tonight's talk, as has Peter and Doug Savage. Doug Savage will be talking about the Persian, uh, Persian Gulf area. And uh, he spent some time there. He's the director of the Institute of World Affairs at UWM. And uh, Peter will bring in, be talking to globalization with a question mark on it at the end, because it's a good way to end this all, because will this continue? Delighted to have the young people joining us again. John, thank you so much for a great presentation and lots for all of us to be thinking about in the next couple of days. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks, John. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you very thank you. much. Thank you, John.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.